0: The emergence of plant-based proteins and other would-be meat alternatives has many in the traditional animal protein industry concerned about losing market share among U.S. consumers. What, with the outsized attention plant-based protein alternatives, seems to get in the mainstream press, one might wonder, what does the data actually tell us? How many consumers, in other words, are willing to pay the premium price many plant-based proteins currently command at retail? Welcome to Feedstuff's In Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we talk with Glenn Hanzer, a professor of agricultural economics at Kansas State University, about research he and his colleagues conducted over the past year regarding consumer attitudes about beef and plant-based meat alternatives. We'll also hear why he isn't overly concerned about animal-derived proteins losing market share and what the literature tells us about who prefers plant-based proteins and who would rather have the real deal. Professor, I feel like it's been a few years now that plant-based or meat alternatives have gotten quite a lot of press. The question a lot of us, I think, in the meat industry have had is, what does that mean for uh, beef, pork, poultry, the other traditional meats? You've been doing research in this space, and I want to talk about a study that you did earlier this year looking at whether or not consumers were willing to pay for plant proteins versus meat proteins. Maybe start with the big picture and tell us about how you set this study up and what it was you were trying to learn.
1: The Cattleman's Beef Board uh, reached out and asked myself, Ted Schroeder, who's also here at K-State, and Jason Lusk, who's at Purdue University, to look into the topic. More narrowly, uh, our task was to figure out what the impact of I'll call it the emergence of plant-based proteins or alternative proteins is on us domestic beef demand. So that was our focus. We did most of that work in 2020. Uh, we were scheduled to do some of it before the pandemic hit. And with those disruptions, we kind of hit pause for a few months in the project. So in September of 2020 is when we did the bulk of our data collection. So we had a very large nationally representative survey and actually four separate consumer experiments. I'll try to mitigate how much jargon I use here, but that was by design. So about half our effort was to look at retail decision-making. So if you're going through a grocery store, buying products to take at home, either ready to prepare at home and the like, what would you do? And we could talk to that in a moment here, Andy. And then the other half, we were actually looking at food service. So if you're at a restaurant sitting down for a meal, what meal option would you pick? And I highlight that because it's easy to forget. Both of those are very important protein choice channels here domestically. Certainly during COVID, one of those was stronger than the other. But historically, both of those are major channels where we get meat protein and more generally protein to consumers in the US. So we designed this to understand current consumption, current perceptions, and how sensitive consumers would be to price changes.
0: I want to come back to the Covid implications later on, because I think that's an, an important part of the discussion. I want to get your your insights on how that influenced uh, the way you approach the the study and so on. But but I think the other piece of background that I find interesting, you have quite a bit of uh, experience taking the pulse of, consumers on what they are and are not willing to pay for what they are are not interested in in terms of attributes of different products. I know you do monthly survey of of willingness to pay that's gone back for a while. Dr. Lusk involved Mm -hmm. in that as well. How did that how did that background that ongoing series of of um, surveys that you have conducted over the years set you up to be able to do this study? And how was this study different from what you're doing kind of in the ongoing space of, of willingness to pay and demand?
1: The first narrower answer, and then I'll give the much broader, more relevant one, but the narrow one is they were separate projects. So how they're funded, how they're supported, how they're executed, you know, this was a kind of a one-off project. So that is important to just keep in mind for our listeners, but the broader one would be, you know, so myself, Jason, and Ted combined, we have decades of meet experience, uh, war wounds and the like that come with that. And how did that help us here? I think we have a pretty good pulse of more broadly what's in the literature, right? What's been done in the past? What are the historical trends? And we're mainly talking for beef here today, but more broadly than U.S. meat demand. And that you know kind of set us up for how to approach this. To give a specific example, the bulk of the work I've been involved with and others as well would say U.S. domestic beef demand is strongly influenced by consumer perceptions of taste, freshness, and other traits. But I was honing in on those two. For example, those two regularly show up as perennial strengths for U.S. beef. Uh, those that are large consumers and willing to pay more for beef tend to have favorable views. You know, for example, taste. And make no mistake, that shaped how we looked at, let's profile, what is the perception of beef versus plant-based on a whole suite of things, including taste, but other things like freshness, the impact on the environment, animal welfare, price safety, a long list. So I hope I'm answering your question, Andy, is the, you know, our decades of experience gave us things to look for and to compare. And even more narrowly helped us design the economic experiments pulling from the literature
0: yeah, that was sort of my assumption as well. And I just I, I thought that was a real relevant um, for folks who aren't familiar with your your CV and your body of research. Uh, i I've, I've been following your work there for a long time and think it's really important um, what 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 you and your colleagues are doing there. All right, let's come back to this particular study because i'm 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 sure that's uh, one of those sixty four thousand dollars questions the listeners have had with all of the the press that plant-based, products uh, have gotten in recent years, what did the customers actually tell us with regard to their their feelings about plant-based versus the real deal?
1: There are several take-home points in this report, and I'm sure we'll end with where you can find it, but it's publicly available on our agmanager.info website, and you and I are just going to touch the surface of some of those points here. For your listeners that are really interested, they should go look at the report, and there is an executive summary that is fairly jargon-free, uh, which ought to help. But I'm going to throw three main findings at us to answer that question here, Andy. First, the most simple one is, what's the consumption frequencies? So before we even jump to perceptions, let's just say, you know, what did we find? We Narrowly, we asked folks yesterday, what did you have? And we know the number of meals that had beef versus chicken versus plant-based and so forth. And the take-home point I want to give everybody here is beef is consumed about three times as often as plant-based proteins per that exercise. So when you ask somebody yesterday, what do you have? Beef is three times as frequently consumed. That's not to say plant-based proteins are not consumed, right? That does show up here, that consumption does exist, but the relative proportions there is important. And if anything, that probably actually understates the lead, comparatively speaking, that beef would have today because we were just looking at one survey, one snapshot, and there's something called social desirability bias that shows up in this work where some might have even overstated how much plant-based they were consuming. The second part would be the perceptions one, which is narrowly what you asked, and we compared taste, appearance, price, naturalness, animal welfare, a whole thing list of things. I believe fifteen items in this project, narrowly comparing beef and plant-based proteins, and beef has a good image. We we'll use that phrase a couple times in our executive summary, reflecting the fact that those relative perceptions, as a general statement, are very favorable for beef. The lead that beef has over plant-based proteins in the consumer's eyes is strongest for taste, appearance, price and naturalness. That's not surprising to us. So I don't think that's a wow factor finding but it's important to recognize it. And the third part is it's a little misleading to just say what US consumers think. We've really got dissect consumers. So we have over 300 million residents here in the US. And one of the important things we do in this report is make a distinction between what we call regular meat consumers, so somebody that self-declares as regularly including meat, fish, seafood, products in their diet, and that's about 68, 70% of our respondents on par with what we find in other efforts, so something like two-thirds of the population, and compare that against the other roughly third that we describe as alternative diets. So at vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, or we include the other you know, unwilling to declare group there. We get very different demand patterns between those two groups. And without losing people in the numbers, the consumers that self-declare as regular meat consumers have a strong preference and will actually pay more for a beef meal at a restaurant or for a pound of beef at the grocery store than a plant-based alternative. And the alternative statement is true. If you are, you know, say vegan, vegetarian, flexitarian, you'll actually pay more for a plant-based meal at a restaurant or more per pound at the grocery store compared to a beef offering. That's not surprising. That's just heterogeneity in our large consumer base. But if you just make average statements, you ask across those and you, you fail to understand what's going on.
0: And while that's sort of a, that, that, that finding, I guess, is intuitive. I mean, it is what you say, you know, the, mm-hmm. the heterogeneity of it. I, the thing I thought was interesting about it is going back to something you mentioned earlier, that social desirability bias, or what I call the, we lie to survey takers phenomenon. Uh, the, when you put your money where your mouth is, that's kind of when the rubber meets the road, right? Are you actually willing to pay for this thing? that you say you're interested in or, or excited about. So that, that finding to me, while it sort of was intuitive, I thought was maybe one of the more important things to come out of it is, all right, how much more are you willing to pay for this thing than that? And, and what I walked away from uh, the executive summary, at least with was that people who are, are meat consumers are really willing to pay for beef.
1: No, I, I would agree with that. And the way you and I'll just give a specific number to kind of up bait those interested in this to look at the full report is when we were looking at the restaurant application, if you're a regular meat consumer, so again for our listeners that's about two thirds of the respondents here, we found you're willing to pay a dollar eighty-seven more per meal at a restaurant for a beef burger meal rather than the plant-based burger meal. Flip that on its head for a moment. If you are a regular meat consumer, that basically means the plant-based burger meal would have to get cheaper than a beef burger meal before you would sort of be indifferent and voluntarily purchase that. If you got a strong preference, basically the other items got to get a lot cheaper before you would change your selection. I highlight that because, and we note in our report is, you know, all industries, beef included, plant-based proteins included, are making efforts to become more efficient, potentially to reduce purchase prices in the future. And to the extent that's feasible for potentially plant-based items, and there's a lot of discussion in that space that gives you kind of some context about how much cheaper those meals would have to get before a regular meat consumer might flip their selection
0: yeah and that that to me tracks with a lot of the stories you saw i know when the impossible burger rollout was was taking you know hold what maybe maybe 2019 i think was that when they introduced the impossible whopper or something along those lines and -hmm. it wasn't long before burger king had that on one of the value menus instead of being a premium price products. I, I mean, I think, there's, I think there's some real life examples that, that line up with the research. Now, the other piece of that, we were talking about restaurant consumption. The grocery store aspect of this was another one that kind of jumped off the page for me in terms of how much more those alternative diet consumers were willing to pay for plant at, at grocery uh, versus what those of us who are maybe more carnivorous are, are willing to pay up at grocery. Tell us about that yep. finding yep. surprised you at
1: all. I don't know that I'd say it was a surprise, but I'll give the numbers to folks. So they know what we we'll are talk about. So you and I and others that are more carnivorous, as you say, uh, the regular meat consumers we found are willing to pay 29 cents more per pound at the grocery store for what we included in our experiment as a store branded 80% lean ground beef package compared to the plant-based alternative. Flip that on its head again. Those that are declared an alternative diet so again, vegan, vegetarian, flexterium we found would pay $2.32 more per pound for the plant-based item over the beef item, the store brand beef items. That in itself isn't real surprising to me because if you back up and say, what is the actual asking price in the grocery store? There is a notable price per pound difference across those items and some are purchasing it, right? So there is actual companies and I'm being, I'm, not, I'm purposely not using brand names here because I don't wanna advertise or push down on any brand or whatever. But if you go through mainstream grocery stores, you will find multiple alternatives of both beef and plant-based today. They're in the marketplace, and I would argue they're probably going to stay because you have some consumers willing to pay it. But not everybody is willing to pay that price differential. And that's basically what our finding says here. So that two-thirds that have a strong preference for meat items will pay $0.29 a pound more for their beef item. That roughly third that prefers plant-based declares an alternative diet we'll pay over 2 dollars a pound more for the plant based item. Wide heterogeneity kind of market opportunity for both is a way you can interpret that.
0: One of the ways I looked at that too the, on the beef side of things that okay we were we were looking at a relatively small bump on on how much more we were willing to pay that to me felt like this is the baseline right especially when we were talking about like an 80 20 lean product that that to me sort of seems like the default setting so i'm not willing to pay that much more for the default setting maybe at grocery than i would you know if i was looking at some other product whether it was a 90 10 or a cab or some other like you say branded type product I, i thought that was
1: interesting And Andy, to that point, you know it was intentional because it's the state of the comparisons today in the real world. But the bulk of our comparisons in this study were, you know, ground beef oriented. Yeah. So ground beef versus plant-based patties, and in reality, the current plant-based offerings are largely patties or crumbles. Mm -hmm. I think that's important to overlay on this. So it's a little bit outside the scope of this report today, but there's a whole suite of beef products, right? You know, yours truly loves ribeyes and the like. Well, this, this report doesn't really get into the ribeye versus a plant-based alternative in many ways, because we're not there yet, Mm -hmm. but to get a complete understanding of, you know, the current impacts and the potential future impacts of these new plant-based alternatives, you quickly got to be aware of the efforts and the ongoing evolution of potential meat muscle, right? Not just ground product substitutes and competing products. We're not there yet, but for the listeners that genuinely are, and you have a diverse audience base is why I highlight that, is that sort of the next evolution and discussion in this comparison in the future.
0: Well, and part of the reason, if you think about the logic of why, if you're a, an alternative marketer, you start, marketer, you start with a ground product because it's a whole lot easier to make that product, uh, especially on a burger where you're going to have toppings and other flavorings and, and so on, maybe you can, can make it more like... Uh, a beef experience oh, when you get to whole muscle cuts that's a whole different ball of wax right how you get it, from plant to a, a pseudo ribeye that's a very different <laughs> that's a very yep. different project
1: <laughs> it, it, it is and you know i'm not the uh engineer and you know, <laughs> the, the creative type to do that i remember i'm an economist but it's also my job to remind us you know most of the ground beef packages we have here in the states are a function of a blend you know so maybe we're blending a less lean beef item with a more lean beef item to hit that 80% target we were just talking about before.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, there's examples that you can find today where you've got beef and plant-based items that are being blended. Right. So when you talk ground beef, particularly at the grocery store, like think buying a one pound package, they're, they're, it's a blending exercise and there's a lot of economic reasons we do that. So there's several reasons that we start with this ground beef versus plant-based patty and crumble comparison, but I'm trying to impress on your listeners and that's not the end all and probably won't be the last time because we do have roast steaks and other beef items that are relevant.
0: Well, and your study, if I'm reading it right, also didn't deal into what we might be looking at if and when we see cell based or or other say I won't say plant based alternatives, but other alternatives like that that are coming down the line. That that could be a different ball of wax as well for future studies, I would imagine.
1: Agreed. So we state right up front, you know, we focused on sort of in the market today plant-based items, not what might be in the future Mm cell-based or lab-based, the term that's floating around. Um, But again, you're right. We got to be aware of that. And, And I'll take the liberty there, Andy, if, you know, if I was in front of your audience for a longer period of time, I'd back up and say, you know, it's important to understand even why we have those multiple protein options that we do today. And it's largely just global demand for protein. You know, I, I give lots of talks. You ask me questions about, you know, our background leading to the study. I think there's immense global demand for protein, and I'm bullish that that's going to grow in the future. Well, with that is a market opportunity for current protein suppliers, as well as potential new market entrants. And we're just talking right now about one of the most recent market entrants. But I anticipate there'll be more in the future, given that large economic pull that comes from consumers wanting protein.
0: That's part of the reason I don't panic too much about the alternative discussions in general because I share that same kind of bullish attitude about global demand for proteins and and I think the US producer is well positioned to to fill a great big chunk of that demand. Now, one of the things I want to talk about back to the study for a moment before we Mm -hmm. wrap up our time together is looking at, as you rightly noted, when we in the industry talk about the U S consumer, we act like that's a monolithic, uh, (laughs) group of purchasers when in reality, very, very different demographics and preferences and personas and so on that a marketer has to sort through when you started looking at the different demographics and cohorts in your study group, were there groups say, based on age, income, other demographic markers that showed very definite preferences for one of these groups of proteins versus the other for beef versus the alternatives?
1: Yes. So I'll answer that narrowly and then try to broaden it out for a moment. So, so we found that those that are more likely to pick the plant-based proteins were younger had children under the age of 12, they had higher household incomes, they resided in what we call here a Western state, so that's really a census statement, but the multiple states, think Rocky Mountains of West is a general statement, and they self-affiliate with the Democratic Party. So you could flip all those on on its head, you're more likely to reveal a preference for beef items if you're older, don't have children at home, have lower household income, if you don't reside in the West, so think East of the Rocky Mountains, and if you don't affiliate with the Democratic Party or do affiliate with an independent or Republican Party, none of that is surprising. You know, each of those have been found in different ways and places over time. Um, that is just a different part of the dissection of the public, like you said, right? It's not a homogeneous group. I think the most important part of that heterogeneity is that first step on self-declaring the role of meat in your diet. Are you a regular meat consumer or not? Is a big differentiation point in our study. Uh, but then you could dive deeper, uh, like you just asked me for on age income and, and the like. And
0: the other piece of this too, I always think about is trends come and go and and shift and change. Gosh, if we think about when I was a kid, we were, you know, denigrating anything that had uh saturated fat in it and you know, red meat was gonna kill us all. And now there's been this resurgence in recent years of protein, whether it's you know, the keto diets or people mm-hmm. who are interested in CrossFit and Strength Sports and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. So everything old is new again in some way. So I, I, I don't get too worked up about trends, but I do think it's interesting looking at okay younger, more affluent consumers are going to have increasing, uh, purchasing power in the coming years. Just Something to be mindful, I guess. I want to wrap up with this. Yep. So you mentioned early on doing this survey in the teeth of COVID. So do you think there were, were limitations that that, that uh, put on you that you'll need to go back and revisit in future research and along with that is the question of what is the next step? Are there are there future um, studies like this that you would be interested in doing to carry forward some of the, the things you learned from this or to get around some of those limitations that you were dealing with?
1: Sure, yeah, and there's two parts to your question. I will just do the, the pandemic one first is, you know, I certainly hope we're towards the end of the pandemic. Uh, I personally think we probably are, but to be determined in that context, but until we are and until we see what the new kind of split between retail and food service um, consumer behavior is. And with that, the role of those two market channels on meat demand, we're, we're going to keep operating a little bit of uncertainty there. I think we're going to have food service come back, but exactly how much and how strong and how close we are, you know, to keep it simple, how much does 2022 look like 2019 is really kind of what we're guessing on today on that front until we know that it's hard for me to know exactly what weight to put on, the retail versus food service findings that we have right here and whether or not they might be different if we reevaluate them in 2022. So I would ask you to you know, come back to me when 2022 starts and we can update that. I think we're gonna have a lot more foot traffic through restaurants and the relevance of food service insights will grow, but that's just a best guess set here today. What about future work that has, that's beyond COVID? Uh, I, I think it gets into that you know, repeat experience point. You know, We're now to the point several consumers have had a plant-based item. Some have chose to have it a second time and multiple times others haven't. That you know background experience, learn from that as it becomes more prevalent across the population, I think will be important to understand, uh, both to understand the future of the plant-based side of things, but as well as to understand the implications for more conventional protein suppliers that get their you know meat items from live animals, which is more broadly here is beef, pork and chicken. So I, I think there's plenty more work to do. Uh, whether or not some of that's done before the pandemic's "quote unquote" officially over or not is a little more harder to answer.
0: And I know, Professor, I said uh, that was the last question, but but one other thing I'm curious about is when we look at big picture, and and I think if we boil down concerns that producers or or beef marketers might have about plant based alternatives is what's what's beef share of the pie. What, what are you seeing and what did you learn from the research there in terms of, are we losing ground to these alternatives?
1: If you take a fixed size of the pie, you know, how the number of meals per day for a given consumer is divvied up, then sort of by definition, when you have new entrants, which is what plant-based proteins would be, then yes, existing protein suppliers, beef, pork, chicken, and the like, would be losing market share. But we put a word of caution in this report, and now this is Glenn speaking a little broader in the report is I think that misses the broader point. And I encourage extreme caution using those kind of market share approaches because it treats the protein pie, the size of the economic value of the industry kind of fixed. And that does a disservice to the discussion. Um, If you share my view that global protein demand is growing, then the size of that pie, that market opportunity for selling protein is growing. If you bring in the fact that exports have become much more important for beef, pork, and chicken industries over the last decade. That kind of makes that point. Where am I going with that, Andy, is I think there's plenty of room consistent with the market opportunity draw for new protein items to be available to U.S. consumers and yet existing mainstay suppliers to do well. That can certainly happen if you have a growing protein uh, marketplace, which is what we have in front of us today, I'd argue. And it's mainly just a word of caution on the market share statistics because they can be a little misleading.
0: You can find the full report of Professor Tonzer's findings in the show notes of this episode. My thanks to Glenn Tonzer of Kansas State University for joining us this week. For the latest reporting on what's happening in the meat markets, along with the news on what's happening in the livestock and animal feed production sectors, visit our website feedstuffs.com and join us, won't you, on our new virtual community and events platform, Feedstuffs 365. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs In Focus. Thanks for joining us. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platforms, including Apple and Google. Or you can check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.